0: Hello, and welcome to the first installment of the History Twins podcast. I'm Aiden Kaplan. And I'm Tristan Kaplan. Today, we are very pleased to be interviewing eminent historian Professor John Turner of the Religious Studies Department at George Mason University. Professor Turner has written three books, Bill Bright and Campus Crusade for Christ, Brigham Young, Pioneer Prophet, and The Mormon Jesus Biography. He is currently working on a history of the Plymouth Colony scheduled for publication in 2020 in time for the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower Crossing. He has also been published in numerous journals, including the Journal of Religion and Mormon Studies Review. And although he's very humble, and he won't admit it, he's also an expert on the Protestant Reformation. Professor Turner, you're most famous for your work on Mormonism, so we'll start with that. All right, so how was it that you're the first non-Mormon to receive nearly unrestricted access to LDS church records?
1: Well, that's a great question. You know, I think it's just a case of good timing, the atmosphere in Salt Lake City and at the Church History Library is currently very open. Things have sort of gone back and forth over the years. And there probably have been past moments in which people have received very good access as well. But at the current moment, the church is trying to be more open in terms of discussing controversial subjects, including the controversial controversial parts of its own history. And so I just showed up at a good moment and built relationships with the gatekeepers to archival materials and was very persistent in asking for things, didn't really like taking No, for an answer, and ultimately was able to see pretty much everything I wanted to see.
0: When I was reading your Brigham Young biography, it seemed like you had diaries of tons of different Mormons. Are those all of the church records, or?
1: Most of what I consulted was in the church's own archives. There were some things that are held at BYU, at the state of Utah archives, at Utah State. So I, I looked at some things elsewhere. But the true gold mine is the church's own archives, uh-huh. which included Brigham Young's own diaries, correspondence, office journals, notes, and lots of diaries and letters of his contemporaries. So it was a question in which it was a subject for which the archival material was simply overwhelming. There was no shortage of
0: information. And what do you see as the chief differences between your Brigham Young Pioneer Prophet and the earlier Mormon scholarship concerning Young? Where they, of course, also would also would have had access to the LDS Church records, probably to a greater extent than you did. So, what the, what's the main? What are the main differences between these? So,
1: one of the prior biographies is a book called American Moses, written mm-hmm. by yeah. Leonard Arrington who at one point was church historian, so you're quite right. He would have had very good access, but he was also very busy and I think didn't have time to look at everything himself. So I actually think that I made fuller use of the archival sources than any prior scholar, mostly, as I said, through good timing. But also I had several summers in Salt Lake City to you know, spend full time looking at things. The church actually digitized a large chunk of the Brigham Young papers for me so I could sit at home when I'd left Utah and keep going through things. Leonard Arrington was really the only prior biographer who had utilized the church's own archives to any significant extent. The other other biographies previously written either hadn't gained access, hadn't tried to, or made use of just inferior sources.
0: So in his review of your book, Brigham Young, Pioneer Prophet, Professor Thomas Alexander of Brigham Young University criticizes your understanding of the Mountain Meadows Massacre, arguing that Young was less at fault for failing to punish the instigators than you make him out to be. In particular, he states that you did not give enough weight to the problems Young faced in bringing them to justice in his actual efforts to
1: do so. What
0: are your thoughts on his critique?
1: Well, I mean, my first thought is that I'm still correct and (laughs) he's not. But uh, actually, I I recently read a manuscript by Professor Alexander. This is quite coincidental in which he makes a strong case that Young did not have as much information about Mormon participation in the massacre as I concluded. So I think you know, I think there's something to be said for that argument. On the other hand, Brigham Young clearly knew about the massacre, did know that at least some of his people were involved, and had he wanted to, uh, could have at least punished them ecclesiastically or done more to get to the bottom of things at an earlier point. I think for very understandable reasons, Young was very afraid that If he helped, say, the U.S. government document and prosecute Mormon participation in the massacre, it might imperil the church and himself. So I think he had very strong motivations for not wanting everything to come to light.
0: I see. And could you briefly explain what precisely the Mountain Meadows Massacre was and what what, what would have driven Professor Alexander to have seen things differently than you?
1: Uh, That's a great question. Um, I don't know how much I can really say about the second part of your question. But yeah, for those who are unfamiliar, this is sort of the first 9-11. This happened on September uh, 11th, 1857. Uh, At the time, it was a state of near war between Mormon Utah and the U.S. Army. A U.S. Army expedition was marching on Utah to replace Brigham Young with a non-Mormon governor. And Young had decided to resist. Uh, at the same time, in September of 1857, in August and September of 1857, a non-Mormon wagon train was making its way, uh, to California. Uh, traveling across uh, what is now Utah, basically from Salt Lake City down to near St. George in present-day southwestern Utah. And on September 7th, a group of mostly Mormon militia with the help of some Paiute Indians ambushed and attacked this wagon train. And then the local Uh, Mormon militia members treacherously offered these non-Mormon men, women, and children safe passage to nearby Cedar City. And once they agreed to it and surrendered their arms, then uh, treacherously murdered almost 120 of them, sparing only um, 17 or 18 uh, young children, probably under the age of eight. So that was the event. Uh, it is a flashpoint of controversy uh, in the history of the church. Nobody, well, or at least very few people, deny that Mormons were primarily responsible for the massacre. But a lot of the controversy is hinged on whether it was a local matter or whether Brigham Young, the president and prophet of the church, authorized the slaughter.
0: All right. So it seems to me that, generally speaking, whatever happens within a certain power structure happens because the figure at the top ordered it or because he encouraged it to happen at the very least. So contemporary historians almost all agree that Young may not have commit, ordered the Malik Massacre itself. He certainly did preach in favor of violence against the settlers moving through more territory, right? So to what extent do you think that makes Young responsible?
1: Well, I think it makes him significantly responsible. Morally... Uh, if not legally, um, you know, I don't think evidence exists to show Young ordering the massacre. And in fact, there is a letter uh, that Young wrote in the midst of the standoff ordering his people to let the let these non-Mormons go on their way. So some of the evidence that exists is actually exculpatory. Um And so that, I think that is significant. At the same time, uh Young, through a long series of actions and sermons, created the climate in which the Mountain Meadows Massacre was possible. And I think that that's important, too. I think, you know, legal guilt 150 years later, that might be significant if there was evidence that could prove Young ordered it. But you know, I think in some ways um, that's been a bit of a dead end for scholarship and looking at not just the fact that Young created this climate, but why he did what he did is significant. I think he very much did live in fear of a, you know, non-Mormon army and mob coming to Utah to persecute his people as they had been persecuted in Missouri and Illinois. I think he was very traumatized by his expulsions from communities in the Eastern United States, had determined not to let that happen again. So I think it's perhaps more interesting to think about why Young created, helped create this situation and why uh, the, why American politicians and military officers also helped to create this situation. I am gonna
0: have to push back on you, a little Tristan. Because to his credit, Young did later issue some sermons condemning the violence, and then and seems like it then it seems like then things calmed down. A lot, things calmed down a lot. So why shouldn't we give him a little more credit for calming things down afterwards? Could have been a lot worse. Yeah, that's definitely true. So, yeah, it seems to me that by the standards of religion in its size, Mormonism killed pretty few people overall, right?
1: <laughs> uh, no, I think that's true. Yeah. I mean, I think essentially what, what the Mormons did was sometimes use bellicose and violent rhetoric. Yep. But they always recognized, whether it was Joseph Smith or Brigham Young or his successors, that they were terribly outnumbered and that if they really tried to fight Uh, non Mormon mobs and militias, they would just get wiped out, and so when push came to shove, they always eventually backed down, which Young did, you know, half a year after the massacre.
0: Sure, although still, like, the like in the areas where Mormons were anyway, like, oftentimes they outnumbered the non Mormons, especially in the early cases, no, so like Jackson County, for instance, that was not the case. Uh, but in Utah, certainly they did, and you might say, uh, and even though they did commit various acts of violence
1: against the Indians, they could have still done a lot worse. So that, they, I think that's true, too. I think yeah, you're quite right. People get very focused on white-on-white on white violence, as in the Mountain Meadows Massacre, and tend not to pay as much attention or think of it's, it's as big of a deal when uh, Mormons you know, engaged in violence against Indians. But even on that case, you're quite right. Um, Especially after the very early years of Utah settlement, Young's Indian policy was, I think, a bit more understanding and pacific than that of the U.S. Army.
0: Uh Uh, In your book, uh, Brigham Young Biography, uh, you have a quote from, I believe, a newspaper saying that early Mormons are a people more sinned against than sinning, quote-unquote. So to what extent do you think that's true? You're like, all these massacres and so on and murders, is this retaliatory? Would the Mormons have done them basically anyway? or?
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, first of all, I think that quote is from 1834 or mm-hmm. so. Yep. And, you know, in a situation like Jackson County, the Mormons were simply the victims of persecution. Um, You know... American Protestants in general were very quick to condemn new religious movements as not heretical necessary necessarily, but as political threats. Uh and I think the non Mormon settlers of Jackson County saw the writing on the wall, saw that they would be soon out be outnumbered, and determined to get rid of the Mormons before that could happen. I think really the Mormons in Jackson County really had not done anything especially provocative. Um, And I think that's largely true later on in, in Missouri. It was also largely true in Ohio. Maybe things were, the Mormons were a little bit more provocative and more hostile towards non Mormons in Nauvoo, Illinois. Uh certainly the situation in Utah was different. Mormons had the upper hand there. They vastly outnumbered um non-Mormon settlers and generally had their way with non-Mormon officials and judges who were sent to the territory in the 1850s and 1860s. I think Young still was sensible enough to recognize that you know, an all-out conflict or war with the United States uh, simply was going to lead to an apocalyptic scenario for his people. Sure. Uh, well,
0: like, Why did the governor of Missouri offer the Mormons in Jackson County some false hope? They, very strangely, he offered them some military assistance. Isn't that right? Like, What's your story? Or how you
1: did that? I'm trying to remember the details. The governor's name at the time was Dunklin, I think. And when the Jackson County Mormons were driven off of their lands, they you know, they quickly applied to the governor for redress and assistance. And, you know, outsiders, the farther away you were from the Mormons, the easier it was for Americans to recognize um, that they were the victims of persecution and to be sympathetic with them. And I think Dunklin at first was sympathetic. And then just think about the practical um, matter of providing relief or judicial justice uh for these people it was sort of an impossible situation for him and i think he probably said some things that were encouraging and sympathetic and then realized he really was not in a position to do anything about the problem
0: so he wanted to help them but he he couldn't he couldn't bring himself to say sorry i can't help
1: you i'd like to but you know, it's exactly. just it sort it of basic human yeah. Yeah. Right. saying,
0: like, I want to help them, so I'm going to say I can help right. them. <laughs> you know, I
1: guess to his credit, uh, President Martin Van Buren, he receives uh, Joseph Smith and maybe some other church leaders, I think in 1839, after the final expulsion of the Mormons from Missouri, and says, you know, I really can't do anything for you. I mean, he was and, the former president. I, uh, I guess he's former president, but... Uh, oh, no, sure, no, well, he's, he's still, he, oh, he's still, he's still president. president. Oh, yeah, of course, still, that's, right. Oh, yeah, that's right. He's still president. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the Mormons are bitter about that, but Van Buren's response is, is pretty honest, and it's sort of in keeping with the relationship between the national government and the states at the time as well. Yeah. So well, what, what year was that again? Was I think 39.
0: 39, yeah. So president eighteen
1: thirty seven, eighteen
0: forty one. 1837, 1841. Alright, so when did the Mormons become nice then? See, um, there's, well, Mormon history is riddled with acts of violence in the early years. Yeah. But like, now the Mormons we know today are all so nice. It's hard to believe that they all could right. ever have been anything different. So, it's when does it
1: happen? It's sort of a strange thing for a religious movement to, to be stereotyped as nice. Yep. Right? Yes, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the
0: Mormons are one of the few
1: groups that has that <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. So, that's a great question. I think. The period really that runs from 1890 to about 1920 is really the key transition. The U.S. government forced the church to abandon plural marriage and any real pretenses to theocracy. Right. Uh, the church also abandoned its doctrine of gathering, whereby converts were encouraged to leave their homes and come to Utah. The church rather quickly became, instead of hostile at times to the United States, you know, hyper patriotic, eager to prove its loyalty to the nation in the Spanish-American War, even more during the First World War.
0: So, how many Mormons actually served in the First World War? So. Uh, I
1: couldn't gi- I couldn't give uh-huh. you numbers, but I I, I I I don't know. It might be proportionate, it might not be. I'm sure the information's out there, yeah. but there there were you know a few highish profile church members who served even during the Spanish American War. Yeah. Um and you know, by the time you get into the post-World War II period, Mormons generally have an image of being patriotic, conservative, anti communist, family friendly, devoted to family. When George Romney runs for president in 1968, his Mormonism really isn't an issue. Uh, so Mormons, I think, rather successfully, uh, enter the mainstream and cultivate sort of a goody two shoes image. image, which I think sort of corresponds to the, to the niceness, uh, stereotype.
0: Sure. Now, in the early years of Mormonism, you often hear about Mormon missions as far as we, as far away as the South Pacific and Latin America and Great Britain. So, why? like, but at the same time, they're like getting kicked out of Jackson County. Joseph Smith is being murdered. What, what what could have possessed the Mormons to go on these missions, even when like their their friends and family are occupying a very tenuous position in the United States?
1: It's a great question. Uh, well, I mean, the church clearly had a missionary impulse from sure. the start. So just immediately Mormons take their message, first of all, to the Lamanites, to the Native Americans, right. uh, across the northeastern United States into what was then called Upper Canada, I think. Um, and so the mission to England is just an extension of that. I think the first mission there is in 1836. You know, the church is also founded right at the point when American Protestants begin to get serious about foreign missions. So the timing, I think, is sort of appropriate for the Mormons to also participate in that. But you're right, it's remarkable how far-flung some of their early missions are. They have very successful missions to England yep. uh, early on. You would have heard a lot of English accents and Welsh accents in both Illinois and Utah in the 1840s and then later. And then the Mormons also have, in the long run, a lot of success in places like the Sandwich Islands, Hawaii, uh, and in the South Pacific. Some of those early missions are also spectacular failures. There's a missionary named Hosea Stout, who, along with a couple of others, goes to Hong Kong, I think in
0: 1851. Well, it's a
1: British colony. All right. One or more of his wives die while he's on route it's just terrible and he's you know he has the sense that he's going to have the spiritual gift of learning the um i don't know dialect of chinese it would be mandarin uh what what, what a Cantonese? i don't know uh, uh anyway he's going to get the spiritual gift of uh the local language when he arrives and he doesn't and it's a total failure and they leave after about six weeks, so you know it's not it's not always
0: <laughs> wow. so, uh, so it seems like that guy gave up pretty easily though there's plenty of uh, Mormon missing air you see stay where they're working for years
1: right, right? you know I you think know, yeah. you know I think the early mentality was a little bit more like the New Testament where Jesus tells when he sends his uh, disciples out two by two, you know if a village isn't interested in your message, shake the dust off your feet sort of curse them and, and move on. <laughs> uh, so I think I think in this case Stout felt like you know he'd showed up, he did what he was supposed to do and it wasn't going well and it'd be a good idea to head home as, as soon as possible. You're right, these days uh, the Mormons are very tenacious and very good at dealing with constant rejection in places like Belgium or Germany or Switzerland.
0: So it seems like they were a lot more successful in those early years.
1: They were converts. They were really successful in certain places in yeah, England so, and parts of the Pacific. Yes, yeah, so it's just that
0: you don't hear about the places where they were unsuccessful and so really it's losing. Like they you
1: know, they,
0: yeah.
1: they are a really audacious religious movement. They have one of their um apostles goes to Jerusalem in eighteen forty 1840 or eighteen forty one and you know, is ready to convert people there, which also doesn't work out. Um, But, you know, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, they're also leaders who are really good at encountering setbacks, picking themselves up and moving on. They're not easily discouraged.
0: Could you explain who Parley P. P. Pratt was? Uh, So Pratt's
1: uh, an early convert. I think he converts after reading the Book of Mormon, maybe in 1830, 1831 at the latest. He is essentially a Baptist or Reformed Baptist who has been interested in restoring the primitive New Testament church and then encounters this new scripture, this message of restoration, helps, I think, convert his minister Whose name is Sidney Rigdon?
0: Yeah, and, and his whole his whole congregation. And a
1: lot of his congregation yeah. and Joseph Smith and his followers then sort of relocate to a town named Kirtland uh, near nearby Pratt and Rigdon's church. So he's a very significant convert. Uh, also, very active on the mission field, going to the Lamanites, going to South America. I think that yeah, point. Right. Chili. Chili
0: also doesn't go too well, I think. Yeah, um, You yeah, well, especially doesn't turn out for him well at the end, right? Well, no,
1: he, he, you know, he has a number of plural wives and he takes as maybe his last wife a woman named Eleanor McLean who's married to apparently an abusive and drunken non Mormon. She like already has some children, right? Right, he already has children and, um, Mr. McLean ultimately tracks Pratt down, maybe in Arkansas. I think
0: that's right, And,
1: and shoots him dead. Wow. Um, and, you know, his, his murder's a big deal. Brigham Young doesn't like Charlie Pratt at all. Yeah, yeah so um, it's a sort of, it sort of helps Brigham Young in many so, ways, yeah.
2: so, you know, he's, he's maybe doesn't shed too many tears over it, but he was beloved
1: by many, many church members or at some books that were, quite beloved by church members in the 19th century as well are
0: there any similar stories about Mormon missionaries practice of polygamy getting them killed or
1: hurt oh that's a great question well pratz is definitely the most famous there are yes. i don't know i'm sure you could, you could we could we could find something else but nothing comes to comes to mind
0: sure We've made a number of, uh, shall I say, mentions of plural marriage, so basically, we'll just clarify that basically just means polygamy, right. but Mormon doctrine is very specific on why plural marriage is different from it, right?
1: Well, sort of. So Mormons tended to use the term plural marriage rather than polygamy, sometimes yep. celestial marriage, sometimes other phrases, such as doing the works of Abraham, and... You know, the, you know, there's a lot of arguments about the origins of the doctrine and practice among the Latter-day Saints. Uh, it certainly isn't there at first. You know, if you had joined what was at first called the Church of Christ in 1830 or 1831, uh, you would have been shocked at what transpired by the early 1840s. You know, I don't think <laughs> most of Joseph Smith's followers uh, saw this coming. Sure. Um, you know, I think there you know, maybe a few, you know, few possible explanations. One is just Joseph Smith's sexual appetite. But I think, you know, most men who... Want to have lots of sexual partners, don't decide to marry all of those sexual mm-hmm. partners. So. so,
0: for example, Brigham Young married some of his mothers-in-law. That, to you, seems highly unlikely to have been any right. kind of a sexual relationship, no, right?
1: No, there are there are a lot of motivations involved: theological, yeah. economic, um, sexual. I think at times, you know, I think, well, you know, I think one basic thing that was going on in Joseph Smith's mind, and this is right in the revelation he dictated about marriage was, you know, the patriarchs of the Old Testament had multiple wives, and was this okay? And uh, Joseph Smith, uh, or God's answer was, yes, this was definitely okay, and you should do this too. Um, And, you know, the Mormons fiercely defend this practice through the 1880s. You know, they point out, not totally unreasonably that in cities like Philadelphia Mm -hmm. and New York, there are thousands of prostitutes and thousands of women who can't have a good husband. And in Utah, every woman can have a husband uh, (laughs) and they don't have this problem with prostitution. Um,
0: Yeah. So, so, To what extent do you think Brigham Young departed from the teachings of Joseph Smith in his Mormon Reformation during the 1850s? This is obviously a somewhat uh, non technical term, but you do refer to one.
1: Yeah, no, well, you know, I think Mormons at the time called it a Reformation, but not a Reformation of doctrine, rather, Mm -hmm. sort of a revival,
2: Mm -hmm. almost
1: in rededication uh, to the church. So, one of the controversial things during this Reformation was Brigham Young's teaching of blood atonement, that some some individuals, some men, had committed sins that could could only be atoned for by the shedding of their own blood. Um, You know, you can find instances of this teaching or things along this line as early as the late 1840s. It's possible that the idea originated with Joseph Smith, but I don't think there's, you know, evidence uh, for that. I think, you know, in in most instances, uh, Brigham Young understood himself as carrying out and sometimes maybe expanding upon Joseph Smith's vision, and some of his ideas, not necessarily. About blood atonement, but um, say his teachings about the relationship between Adam, God the Father, and Jesus Christ. Some of those I think are sort of logical or possible logical extrapolations of what Smith taught.
0: I mean, Smith uh, didn't get a chance to clarify plenty of very confusing doctrine, right? So, right.
1: Well, yeah. not the least among, how do you actually live out plural marriage? Right. You know, it's not really lived openly in Illinois. So it's up to Young to, you know, complete Joseph's work, sort so, of, as he, as he understands it.
0: And before we wrap up with Mormonism counterfactual history question for you. What would have happened to Mormonism without Brigham Young as the the successor of Joseph Smith? Well, I think that would depend on who else the successor
1: might have been. Really, you know, the fact that Young is the successor is just, in some ways, accidental. He's the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles at the time, because he's two weeks older than his good friend Heber Kimball. And, if you flip that, I don't think Kimball was as talented um, as Young, but they were similarly minded. But, you know, I think if other uh, individuals had become president of the church rather than Young, on certain things, things could have turned out differently. There were certainly men much less enthusiastic or skeptical about polygamy. There were men who did not have share Young's ideas about race and slavery. So certainly some things could have turned out very differently. I'm not really that sympathetic to the idea, well, if you didn't have Brigham Young, everything would have collapsed, and we wouldn't be talking about Mormonism today. When Joseph Smith was murdered, everybody was sure that was it for the Mormons. When Brigham Young died, everybody was sure that was it for the Mormons. You know they've they've hung around pretty well, so sure, yeah. I, I, you know I think attributing their survival or persistence to any single individual after Joseph Smith, I, I don't think that would make sense.
0: All right, so let's take let's uh, take a change of gears here and uh, talk about your dissertation.
1: Okay. That's a long time ago.
0: I'm getting old to remember (laughs) these sorts of things. Well, uh, let's test your memory. Okay. So why was Bill Bright, a man who was unequivocally interested in evangelizing, also an avid promoter of Bible study? In his own words, wouldn't have been a mistake to be just reading a book when two hundred yards away men and women are going straight to hell.
1: Hmm. Well, young I mean, Bill Bright probably would have thought, yeah, you'd better go out and evangelize them. (laughs) You know, that that was always his
0: but he also had, he also promoted Bible study a lot and
1: had his and had
0: his fellow uh, missionaries preach or like, uh, yeah. like memorize scripture and stuff. Isn't it important for people to understand what they're trying to get people to convert to? But try and take this from his perspective, Tristan. I mean this is like there yeah. there's souls need that need to be saved.
1: Well you don't yeah. Need to,
0: yeah, your your soul can be saved without reading. Mean, I think
1: I think in some ways Bright had almost a monomaniacal focus on evangelism. Above all else, but, you know, there are 24 hours in a day. And, you know, Christians of almost all sorts are going to think, well, you should take time out for worship on Sunday, and maybe you should take time to pray and to read the Bible. So, I don't know. Um, Bill Bright was very committed to to evangelism. And, you know, one thing I try to say in the book, is he did also get interested in other things such as politics mm-hmm. you know he wanted to save not just individuals but also mm-hmm. save the nation and because of that he sometimes dabbled in sorts of conservative political activism like a lot of other evangelical leaders did but i actually think his first love very much did remain evangelism.
0: that's what he cared most about even mm-hmm. though he did some other things So, Real Bright saw himself and his fellow members of Campus Crusade for Christ as missionaries that could learn much from salesmen, Mm -hmm. uh, encouraging them to read Frank Becker's How I Raised Myself from Failure to Success in Selling. This would be a a big 1950s uh, uh, success in selling book. (laughs) Alongside other classic evangelical works, uh, just like the Bible and stuff like that. His attempts to sell people on things other than Christ had routinely met with financial failure when he had his his uh, right. California can- a confections candy store. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so why was it that Bright and Unsuccessful Salesman was such a successful evangelizer?
1: That's a great question. Now, Billy Graham uh, sold brushes for the Fuller Brush Company either at the end of his high school years or early in his college years. And he apparently was the number one salesman for all of the state of North Carolina and realized he could just sell anything Um, so Bill Bright, no, he hadn't been a remarkable success at other things. You know, he wasn't a great student. I don't think the candy business really went anywhere. But, you know, I think a lot of people who have an entrepreneurial bent, they don't necessarily succeed at the first thing they do. Uh, You know, sometimes there's Failure and, and, and try again.
0: Oh, well, there's tons of randomness, right? Right. It seems like the most obvious argument is, uh, you know, you could run an unsuccessful business, like, once, but then the next time you try, you get it above the ground. Right. right? And then that could be the same thing with the uh, evangelizing, where it's like, right. you, you may not be good at selling st- some stuff, right. but then maybe it's just bad luck.
1: Well, whatever. and, you know, and that's, great. that's a very good point. And over the decades, some of Bright's evangelistic campaigns did a lot. Did a lot better than others. I think, you know, among the things he did well was recognize that you could sell something most effectively if you distilled it into a fairly simple and digestible message Mm -hmm. that your sales force could repeat.
0: And, of course, he made appeals to, like, Eisenhower and
1: MacArthur, popular figures at the time who would have appealed to young people on the campus. Right. And, you know, he had figured out from a mentor of his named Henrietta Mears Mm -hmm. that a really effective way of evangelizing young people was to successfully evangelize a few star athletes, student body presidents, sorority and fraternity leaders, and that they would then
0: be really effective. Evangelists to their peers. Mm-hmm. Now it certainly seems like even in the 1950s, these fraternities and sororities had reputations as being hotbeds of sin. So why is it that Bill Bright was so successful evangelizing these these fraternity and sorority houses? Obviously, he's made, his his first big success on the UCLA, UCLA campus was at the uh, it was at the sorority house, so right. Kappa Alpha Theta, I believe. So why was it that these supposedly?
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think. You know, I, I, I'm i not that familiar with the history of Greek life, either personally or otherwise. <laughs> sure. um, that wasn't really my college scene. But I think these, you know, as, a, as social organizations, these were, uh, in addition to athletics, very dominant in terms of the social and cultural life of a place like UCLA in the early 50s. So I think you didn't have much choice. Um, and...
0: There's yeah. something about appealing to women that had that had spe- that had a special. Right. It seems like the common strategy was yeah. to first like uh, evangelize the women, and then the women get their boyfriends and such into the religion as well, or yeah. maybe like into quote
1: unquote. Right? Maybe. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, I I don't know that that was really at least a conscious strategy. That has been a conscious right. strategy for yeah, some yeah. Uh, religious movements. I think. Um, but you know, I think this. You know, this is the early 1950s. It's not that impossible to get uh, young people on a college campus to engage in a conversation about Christianity and, and religion. I think you know it's harder. It's a little bit harder now uh, than it would have been back then. But you know, Bright, um, you know he, he, you know he he won. You could say or recruited a number of. Of sort of top notch converts, especially on the UCLA football team, mm-hmm. and that just provided a, a model for spreading this movement to other large state universities in particular.
0: Yeah, it does certainly seem to me that Bill Bright saw like women as being easier to evangelize. For instance, the like the like the uh, Campus Crusade for Christ newspaper, like uh, what was the again? commune. Something I, for, a, I
1: forget.
0: Yes, something like that. Communicate. Communicate. Yeah, right? communicate. That's right. Yep. Yeah. So oh, yeah. So he observed that, like in almost every case, quote unquote, the girl accepts. Well, okay. the girl, the girl accepts Christ as savior. That's interesting. So it uh, definitely seems to me like it was somewhat of a conscious strategy for Bill Bright to evangelize women first.
1: You, you could well be onto something. You know, I think. Um, you know, I I do think once they made some headway with athletes or fraternity leaders it, it also just became easier
0: right now, historians often write about counterculture movements on university campuses during the 1960s but they focus on like the the, the classic uh the, you know the classic hippies and, uh, and also and all, and all everything else there so like why isn't it so Bill Brighton campus crusade for christ was in many ways during the 1960s a different counterculture movement why is it why isn't it that they don't so why isn't it that they don't write books about Bill Bright and Campus Crusade for Christ? Why is it that they don't write books on, uh, on popular movements emphasizing more traditional values?
1: Well, you know, there, there actually are some great books that have been written in the last decade or two on both religious and political conservatism uh, among young people in the 60s and early 70s. So I do think some historians have recognized, you know, they were missing a big part of the story. Mm -hmm. And campus life definitely looked very different if you were, say, in Berkeley uh, versus in Oklahoma, right? So there there were lots of different campus cultures. You know, I think, you know, traditionally, the story of the counterculture and the anti-war movement which are two related but discrete things are both just topics of enormous popular appeal. You know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll on the one hand, uh, anti-war uh, activism on the other hand. Evangelical uh, evangelicalism on the campus is not exciting in the, that first sense of the counterculture. Nor does it have that obvious political salience that the anti-war movement has on campus. But, you know, I think it's worth noting that in many ways, as far as American campuses are concerned, the late 60s, early 70s is, it's sort of one of the heydays of evangelicalism on the campus, uh, which I think is an important counter note to those other histories.
0: Yeah, it's amazing to me that you can pick up an American history textbook and it, like might flip open to flip it open to the 1960s uh, where it's talking about college campuses and you never hear anything like Bill Brighton Campus Crusade for Christ. You'd honestly get the impression that it was all just a bunch of hippies doing their yeah. <laughs> doing their stuff, yeah. there, especially in California, protesting against wars and so Yeah, on. yeah. You, know, yeah. You, you never hear about this attempt to make America religious again, basically. All right.
1: Well, you know the you know I write about that huge. Started evangelical youth rally in Dallas in 19, excuse me, 1972 called Expo 72, where yeah, I think Bill Bright is there, maybe Billy Graham comes, Johnny Cash is there. Yeah, this was huge. Uh, yes. Yeah. So you got
0: like very big names.
1: Right. I really like the song Johnny Cash sang at it. You can, somebody sure. can, can do that on YouTube, Johnny Cash Expo 72. Right. Um, and I've noticed that in a lot of histories, at least of uh, American religion, but maybe even more broadly. Expo 72 is now something that's often mentioned mm-hmm. um, as a counterpoint to Woodstock or right. the anti
0: war movement. It seems plausible to me that, in terms of the number of people who have heard about uh, this counterculture slash hippie movement, it seems like way more probably just listen to Billy Graham. Like, have you seen these numbers saying that Billy Graham, like 2 billion people, have heard Billy Graham? Sure. Yeah, I mean, to me, that seems huge. And, like, it gets, like, no message. Well, I get, my American history textbook didn't talk about Billy Graham at all.
1: Well, I mean, I think that's I think that's sort of unfortunate. You know, I think somebody like Billy Graham, it's he's not an easy person to talk about. Maybe you could in the context of the religious right, mm-hmm. but so here's an individual like, as you said, enormously popular, probably the most you know just in an aggregate over the years maybe the most admired person in the country from yep. the 1950s through maybe the 1980s. The great legitimizer. Was right. Yep. But then if you try to say, well, what is Billy Graham's influence mm-hmm. on the larger trajectory of American history? That would be a little bit trickier, mm-hmm. but I do think Billy Graham, Bill Bright and others, they provide all sorts of momentum for this new evangelicalism after world war II. Which is important in its own right, I think, in making evangelicalism really the most significant brand of Protestantism in the United States uh, by the end of the 20th century, into the 21st century. Certainly very significant for the development of uh, political conservatism and the religious right. Um, that is, of course, of great significance for politics by the 1980s.
0: All right, so, uh, me back to the 17th century and some of the people that Bill Bright would have loved, let's talk about your upcoming book on the Plymouth Colony. All right, so, uh, why did the pilgrims set sail from in Rotherhithe, Rotherhithe <laughs> in mid July? Rotherhithe in mid July. am
1: I pronouncing that correctly? You know, I'm not 100% sure. I went there last summer and mm-hmm. ate at this Mayflower pub. Right, um, where the Mayflower may have set sail from yeah. in 1620. Yes. Well, essentially, the uh, the Pilgrims were separatists who had totally rejected the Church of England. Uh, they had experienced some persecution in sort of the late first decade of the 1600s and had left England and taken refuge in Leiden in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the 16-teens, they were looking to move elsewhere. You know, they weren't finding it economically easy in the Netherlands. They didn't want their children to grow up Dutch. Uh, they wanted to remain English. They wanted to prosper and flourish more than they had so that more People who might be sympathetic to their religious point of view back in England might join them. So they decided to do something utterly foolish, which Mm -hmm. was to become colonizers.
0: (laughs) Yeah, great Uh, idea. Which which I consider (laughs)
1: one of the most foolhardy things you can do. Now, it's fine to have other people start a colony and then join it after a few years if things are going okay.
0: Uh, Sure. To do it yourself, that's really hard.
1: To do it yourself is really hard. These people, you know, they, they had a few... Somewhat worldly wise uh, leaders, but you know they didn't really know much at all about where they were going. They didn't end up where they apparently were heading. They left way too late in the year
0: to plant and harvest a crop, right? They would have been basically way too hopeless, late. Yeah.
1: Better, much better to leave in April than in uh, September. So they arrive, you know, on Cape Cod, and it's already winter. I mean, um, did
0: they think that the weather might somehow be different or? <laughs> well, they, did they, not know they what were to apparently
1: we were aiming for more around the Hudson, which would, it would have been bad in any event. Yeah. Um, but mm-hmm. you know, they don't, uh, they don't settle on, uh, what's now Plymouth until mid December. So it's a terrible time of year. I mean, I think the largest part of their deaths ultimately are due to scurvy probably mm-hmm. and maladies related uh, to that. Um, so anyway, I kind of went beyond your question.
0: Sure. Yeah. Uh, like in, Of course, were, like some people might say it was just because the Pilgrims were scared of staying much longer, so William Brewster, who was one of the leaders of the Pilgrims, had narrowly escaped arrest uh, only a few months before they left, so what do you think about that?
1: Well, that's true. I mean, he faced arrest because of his role in the publication of books that the crown regarded as seditious Mm -hmm. uh now certainly if they had stopped publishing those books they could have stayed so you know it was you know they 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 had some choices they they could have made but it was dangerous and there was a strong chance that the truce between spain and the united provinces of the netherlands was going to break down so there's a possibility of warfare there um Mm-hmm. So, you know, there were there were a number of reasons for them to leave. Yeah,
0: but it doesn't seem like they were actually that much danger, does it?
1: I know, there was no clear and present danger for That's the true. vast majority of them, and in fact, you know, they've gotten along quite well with uh, the Dutch authorities, despite being outside the Dutch church.
0: So, following up on that, to what extent was religious persecution important for motivating the Mayflower Voyage as compared to the Pilgrims' own intolerance of Catholics and other Protestant
1: sects? So, I think persecution was significant for their initial flight from England to the Netherlands mm-hmm. uh but it really was not the immediate reason why they came to the new world as i said they they wanted to do better and be more attractive to people who might join them and yes of course uh they were not tolerant themselves in fact they the majority of the separatists among the pilgrims like almost everybody else in English would have in England would have regarded toleration as a dirty word. You know, one tolerated things one didn't like because one had to, not because it was a good thing in and of itself. So yes, they certainly loathed uh, Catholicism, uh, like most other uh, English Protestants. And, you know, they wanted liberty of conscience, for themselves, but what they really wanted was their understanding of the liberty of the gospel, which meant setting up the church according to their understanding of the New Testament. Uh, they didn't want other churches. They were trying to, and really, they were trying to transplant a congregation. And in doing so, they founded a colony, and therefore things became a lot more complex.
0: Sure. Sure. All right. So, what similarities and differences have you noticed between the Mormons and the Pilgrims, religiously and politically? It seems like you've got a a similar uh, being persecuted attitude there, and then this prompts their
1: flight. Well, you know, first of all, they they are both groups are intensely focused on what church is the true church. What is the true church of Jesus Christ? And for the Pilgrims. Like very few others in England, there weren't true churches in England, except for maybe, you know, a French Reformed congregation that happened to be there, or maybe a few Dutch congregations. The Church of England was a false church. So church the of Anglican Broome. Church was bad. What's that? So the Anglican Church was bad, no question. Well, not, it. Just bad, not just bad, anti-Christian. anti so, You know, beholden, yeah. to, beholden to Antichrist. Right. And... You know, so there's this impulse among separatists and like-minded dissidents to reject almost all of the churches of the day as powerless, corrupt, anti-Christian, which is not unlike Joseph Smith's conclusion about the Protestant churches of his day.
0: So, Presbyterianism is not true. Presbyterianism
1: (laughs) is not true. Uh, Exactly. So there's that, that concern for proper church order in a sense that pretty much everybody else or everybody else has has gotten it wrong. Um, that's a commonality, you know, beyond that, you know, there's, you know, there's, there's in many ways more differences. Uh, the pilgrims are not interested in prophetic leadership or the promulgation of new doctrines, uh, nor is there quite among them quite such a close, Intermingling of church and state as you get among uh, Utah Mormons in particular. Yeah, that really does
0: seem a bit like a theology. <laughs>
1: well, yeah,
0: Mormons have going for
1: them. Yeah, so I mean, I think I think that's a difference. But you know, in terms of a lot of rhetoric and language and impulses, there are there are some commonalities, which right. I think is is interesting. Yeah.
0: You, would you characterize the more like the early Mormons and pilgrims as basically being theocracies, or a little more complicated than that? Well,
1: you know, so in the case of so, take Mormons in Utah, beginning in the late 1840s, 1850s, the people um, who are in charge of politics are the top church leaders. Sure. So, you know, I think it really is a theocracy. In the case of the pilgrims, there's a sense that magistrates and ministers should cooperate to promote true churches and to suppress heresy. But there's not a sense that ministers should run the show. And there's later instances in Plymouth Colony in which the ministers very much want the magistrates to crack down on religious heterodoxy and more rigorously enforce Church attendance or things like that, and the magistrates aren't interested. So, I wouldn't define either Puritan Massachusetts or Puritan Plymouth as theocracies, technically speaking. They were not in the normal sense of the word where priests run the government. Exactly. They they are religiously intolerant societies, which is really Mm -hmm. what you expect in the 17th century outside of maybe the Mm -hmm. Dutch Republic.
0: At the same time, of course, historians, frequently anyway, or may more more often, characterize uh, Calvin's Geneva or Savonarola's Florence as being theocracies, even though neither of those two men were technically allowed to hold any political office being members of the clergy. So,
1: well, what are your well, thoughts ca- on that? So, you know, if, if there's maybe just a very large amount of unofficial extra-legal influence, maybe that veers closer to a theocracy yeah. in plymouth colony you know the church is really weak in some ways they they have a hard time just getting a minister for really uh, 10 or 20 years well their minister from the netherlands doesn't go with them
0: so they don't know. like get a new minister
1: say, or something Now they says, have, hey, all right, you're the next one well, they try then. they have a lay elder but okay. the minister back in the netherlands doesn't think they can have the lay elders sort of take over.
0: So it's like he's writing the letter saying, like, I have no guy who can possibly replace me. Well, there aren't a lot of
1: separatists. Uh-huh. And, you know, eventually, you know, sort of the space between separatism and Puritanism in New England sort of narrows. So over the long run, there's not as much of a difference between Massachusetts Bay and Plymouth Colony. But they, they get a minister and, You know, the late 1620s, he doesn't really work out too well. Get another one in the mid 1630s. He's not, you know, it's not really, a force to be reckoned with. They get another guy who's very promising, but he wants to fully immerse infants instead of just pouring a little water (laughs) over them. So that doesn't work out. In a lot of other towns, it's not a wealthy colony. A lot of settlements, they don't really have the money to hire a minister. So some towns just don't have one. So it's not until later in the century that the religious establishment, you know, gets gets a little bit firmer, uh, it take, takes a while. So, and also the pilgrims from the get-go, and I think this is a really significant point and it is different than Massachusetts Bay. You know, on the boat over, there's a lot of non-separatists that have been sort of slapped together with them and they choose uh, to work together and to coexist as freemen as citizens of this colony, and so from the start, there's you know an explicit desire for a measure of civil pluralism yeah. you know the the separatists sort of run the show in terms of the religious establishment, but the right to vote unlike in Massachusetts Bay, at least for a few decades, isn't linked to church membership.
0: Mm-hmm. So, what's your opinion as to the nature of the pilgrims' early interaction with local Nauset Indians? Is that the. Uh, Well,
1: there's Nauset on Cape Cod, Wampanoag is the the kind of broader term for those in the area. Well, at first, it's mutually advantageous a mutually beneficial relationship. The Wampanoag have been devastated by epidemics.
0: Sir, this is not, not caused by the pilgrims. Not
1: caused by the pilgrims.
0: <laughs> this is like the uh, little kid story that you get where the uh, pilgrims sell up and then there's the first Thanksgiving and so on. Yeah,
1: so, <laughs> right. you know, the Wampanoag have been massively reduced in numbers. Some uh-huh. of their enemies haven't been. Certainly, the Wampanoag could have wiped out the Pilgrims that first winter. They were not in a position to defend themselves. But um, the Wampanoags understand uh, the Pilgrims as beneficial allies and as a counterweight to their own enemies. So they're quite happy to form an alliance. And the Pilgrims need help. And um, and some protection at first. So, you know, there is a harvest celebration in the fall of 1621. It's not what most Americans would picture as Thanksgiving. You know, there's no long table with people sitting uh, around it eating turkey uh, oh well. or things like that. So what was it really like? I really think harvest celebration. The, the Wampanoag showed up. Uh, brought deer there were several days of feasting and games i don't Uh think it was it wasn't a day of thanksgiving as protestant english protestants would have understood it which would have involved a worship service in the morning and maybe a feast in the afternoon It, it was more of a harvest celebration It really is probably not the first Thanksgiving in the New World. There are others, but I imagine that those who were there were thankful. So calling it a Thanksgiving (laughs) that doesn't, you know, that doesn't especially bother me. But
0: basically, by befriending the Wampanoag, the Pilgrims sort of made enemies of the other Indians.
1: Did that cause some problems later on? Well, it did cause them some problems. Probably pretty quickly, within a few years, there's a report that a group of Massachusetts Indians to the north are planning to attack um Plymouth. Now that information comes from the, their Wampanoag allies. Whether it's credible information or not is up for debate. But the pilgrims send a military expedition up to the north and they Have at it. what's that? Have at it. Well yeah, they, they treacherously murder uh a a number of Indians.
0: I was never told that in school. No,
1: you wouldn't. You wouldn't get that in school. It's much less savory. And they, you know, they cut off the head of the alleged conspirator and bring it back to Plymouth and put it above their fort. Because yeah. that's what you do with traitors and, course and they, criminals yeah, uh, awesome. back then. Um, you know, I think really, it, it's still noteworthy that for several decades, the relationship between the Wampanoag and the pilgrims are pretty good. The English are basically confined onto the East Coast um, and, to some extent, on Cape Cod. And the Wampanoag, you know, the, their main leaders are further to the West. So this is kind of good for both sides. Eventually, when English settlement encroaches on those
2: mm-hmm.
1: fertile and valuable lands, everything falls apart and there's... A terrible war in the mid 1670s, traditionally called King Philip's you know, War. Or by the War. Right, which, it, you know, the epicenter is Plymouth Colony, and it's Plymouth that's moving in on these lands and is muscling out, uh, Wampanoags. So, in the long run, it's it much less benefit. It didn't work out for, the, work for out. the Indians. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, you can, yeah, every, almost everybody involved, not to be overly Calvinistic about it, sort of pursued self-interest and made decisions that were best for them at the time. All right. I guess they understood it.
0: So, what's next for you after your pilgrims book, John? I've heard you're uh, thinking of
1: writing a book
0: on the German Peasants' War.
1: No, I I've thought about that. I thought about a, a biography of Saint Peter. Oh, um, I right. thought about a variety. I thought about some other Mormon-related projects. You know, I'm kind of still interested in that. But, um, I don't know, I have about a year to work really hard on the Plymouth Colony book, and I'm going to do that and then take, take a little time off. All right.
0: So uh, thanks to our listeners, and the thanks again to you, Professor Turner, for being here today. Uh, if you enjoyed this installment of the History Twins podcast, there will be another next month, which will also be available on iTunes and SoundCloud. Until next time, I'm Tristan Kaplan, and I'm Aiden Kaplan, and, and together, together we are the History Twins. Twins.